0: If you take your Bibles and turn to the book of Jude, please. The book of Jude. God willing, we'll be expounding verses 14 and 15 today. And looking at Enoch's prophecy. In the past couple of weeks, Jude has been using analogies to illustrate these false teachers who have crept into our churches. And now, as we move into verse 14, he's going to tell us, What's going to happen to these men who've crept into our churches when Jesus comes again? We've been learning all the sad things about how they got in, what they're like, the damage they're doing, and all of that. But that's not the end of the story. What is going to happen to them when Jesus comes again? And to do so, to tell us about that, Jude is going to call on an Old Testament witness who prophesied about these creepy clergy. Look with me now in verse 14, Jude said, and Enoch also, Enoch also, in other words, not just me, but Enoch also talked about these false teachers, and since there is more than one Enoch in the Bible, Jude let us know that the Enoch he was speaking of was, look back in your text, the seventh from Adam. Adam who we read about in Genesis 5, verse 24, which says, And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. I've often wanted to be like Enoch. I've thought about that and prayed about that many times. Not because he never died. I know I'm going to die. But because he had such a close walk with God. Throughout Enoch's life he walked with God and then one day instead of dying God just took Enoch home to heaven with him and I want to be like Enoch in the sense that I want my life to be such a sweet walk with God in my death I want my death to be my last step with him on earth and my first step with him in heaven that's how I want it to be I want to walk with God every day And then when I die, I just want my death to be my last step with God on earth and my first step with God into heaven. And I prayed for that. When Jude says Enoch is the seventh from Adam, he means Enoch is the seventh generation from Adam. Adam being the first. Seth being the second. Enosh being the third. Canaan being the fourth. Mahalel being the fifth. Jared being the sixth. And then Enoch being the seventh. And Enoch was the great-grandfather of Noah. The great-grandfather of Noah. How about that? Just like, there's my dad, and there's Gabriel and Leah, their great-grandchildren. That's pretty close. He was pretty close to Noah. And uh, Enoch lived between Adam's fall and Noah's flood. Just to give you some context of Enoch's prophecy. He lived between Adam's fall and Enoch's flood flood only 192 years earlier Adam had been walking the face of the earth it's pretty close isn't it pretty close to the beginning so Enoch wasn't far removed from the first man but by the time his great-grandson Noah arrived on the scene mankind had so corrupted its way that God had to destroy the entire earth with a flood The earth was young back then, but the damage sin had caused was very great. And I'm sure Enoch saw a lot of wickedness during the 365 years that he lived on earth and living so close to the time that Adam walked the face of the earth. I'm sure it grieved Enoch's heart to watch the rapid spiritual decline of man and all the heartache that came as a result of their sin and Enoch, seeing how, seeing how rebellious these men were and how they had corrupted the wonderful creation God had made, Enoch, look back in your text, prophesied of these men. He prophesied of them. Now this is a very good time for us to learn. These two verses are just packed full of doctrine this morning. It's a very good time for us to learn uh, something important about Bible prophecy. He prophesied of these men. On many occasions, the New Testament, if you haven't noticed, if you are a casual reader of the Bible, you haven't noticed. If you are a student of the Bible, you probably have noticed. But on many occasions in the New Testament, the, the New Testament writer will quote from an Old Testament prophecy and he will attribute that Old Testament prophecy Uh, to be speaking about a specific occurrence in the New Testament, saying this was a fulfillment of this Old Testament prophecy. And sometimes, if you were to go back, and you were to read that Old Testament uh, prophecy in its context, and you're honest with yourself in your heart, it might look like the prophecy is actually speaking about something else other than what the New Testament writer is attributing it to. And if you're not careful, you may begin to wonder if the New Testament writer may have made a mistake by quoting the Old Testament passage. Does anybody here besides me know what I'm ta- what know, understand what I'm talking about? Okay, we got some head shaking here. Good, good. You see, Enoch is not talking specifically about the creepy clergy in the New Testament. His prophecy doesn't specifically address them. If you read Jude's quotation of Enoch, you might think, well, Jude, maybe he's making a mistake because Enoch doesn't say anything about these false teachers who snuck into the church unaware. And this is where we learn that there are principles, fundamental principles in Enoch's prophecy that apply to creepy clergy. And that's why Jude said Enoch prophesied of these men. But before we expound on, on Enoch's prophecy, we need to understand that it's not recorded in the Old Testament. So we can't go back to Genesis 5, for example, or the book of Enoch, and because uh, it's not in there, and study his prophecy to see what he said. But we do know the circumstances that Enoch wrote in, because we know the corrupt times that he lived in. So Jude is our only source to read Enoch's words unless you feel that in Deuteronomy a portion of what Jude is saying is quoted there and that's just a little bit deeper study but there is a book of Enoch because some people may be here may be familiar with that and think well I wish he would touch on that for a moment, so I don't want to get too deep into that, but there is a book of Enoch which you can read today, you can get a copy and read it today, which did exist before Jude wrote the book of Jude. But the Jews never accepted the book of Enoch in the Old Testament. It's not part of their canon, which is why we don't have it in our Old Testament today. It was never considered scripture. If you were to read all of it, Uh, and scrutinize all of it, I think you would see why it was not accepted in Scripture. And for this reason, I believe Enoch's prophecy was known to the Jews. I believe it was passed down by tradition from his grandson Noah. And somebody later created the book of Enoch that we have today and included the words that Jude is quoting in their writings. But that Enoch was not the author of it. They call it a pseudopigrapha, which means somebody wrote it claiming to be Enoch, but it was not. So that brings us back to our text this morning. Jude said Enoch prophesied to these creepy clergy. Look back in your text saying, behold, the Lord cometh. Behold, the Lord cometh. I have a friend of mine who house sits sometimes. And we've all probably known people. Has anyone done any house sitting before? Like a little side job? Did you get paid? Good deal. Good deal. Uh, and and uh, we've all known people who've done some house sitting before. And let, So let's suppose for a moment that a husband and wife were to go out of town and they want someone to stay in their home and make sure the mail's collected, make sure the pets are fed. So they hire a young man to do that for them while they're gone. But after the homeowner's Get on the plane. They fly out of town. The house sitter decides to move into the home and take over. He starts throwing parties in the house. He starts sleeping in the owner's bed. He sells the husband's guns for some extra cash. He takes the wife's clothes and gives it to his girlfriend. He looks around. He finds the keys to the car in the garage. Looks in the closet, starts wearing the man's clothes as his own, and starts driving their car around town. The house sitter begins to live, so the homeowners are never coming back. But the truth is, they are coming back. So here's the question. What do you think the homeowners are going to do when they return? Huh? You better believe it. they're going to kick the unfaithful servant out of their house. Then they're going to rightfully reclaim what belongs to them. They're going to fix the damages done, and they're going to hold that man accountable. That's how Enoch's prophecy applies to creepy clergy. As the house sitter was an unfaithful servant who must one day face the homeowners for the damage done when they return. So Jude is letting us know these creepy clergy must one day face the God of all creation, the owner of the church, the heavens and the earth, when He returns. Like the house sitter, we don't know how long our Lord's going to stay gone, but Enoch said He is coming back. That's the point. And there will be a day of reckoning for ungodly people, including these creepy clergy. There will be a reckoning for them. Enoch said, Jesus is coming back, look back in your text, with ten thousands of his saints. Now when we read about Jesus coming back with ten thousands of his saints, the the I believe probably for most of y'all here, or most people when they read this, the automatic image that comes into our minds is that he's coming back with ten thousands of Bible-believing Christians who's going to return with him, and that's what he's talking about. But I don't believe that's what he's talking about, okay? So don't picture us coming back with Christ, and that's what Enoch is talking about here, or that Jude is quoting here. Uh, the Greek word that's translated saint here, it means Holy. Holy. It's the same Greek word uh, when you see the word Holy Spirit. It's the same Greek word translated holy there in in the New Testament, Holy Spirit. So he's coming back with ten thousands of his holy ones. You see that his holy ones. That's literally what it's saying. And this verse sounds very much like Deuteronomy thirty three two, which perhaps they were quoting uh, from the known prophecy of Enoch back then. Uh, in Deuteronomy thirty-three two, and and when you compare that with Psalm sixty-eight seventeen, uh, and some other texts in the Bible, then I believe that this text is speaking of Jesus returning with His holy angels, not His holy people, His holy humans, but His holy angels. Those are the saints. In Deuteronomy, if you're writing down in your notes in your margin, Deuteronomy thirty-three, verse one and two. It says, and this is the blessing wherewith Moses the man of God blessed the children of Israel before his death. And he said, the Lord came from Sinai and rose up from Seir unto them. He shined forth from Mount Paran and he came with ten thousands of saints. This is out about in the Old Testament. From his right hand went a fiery law for them. So God visited His people, He rose up from Sinai, which is where the law was given, which is where He met Moses, right? He rose up from there, He delivered His people out of the land of Egypt, He brought them to Mount Sinai, and when He did, He came with ten thousands of His saints, and there He gave to the children of Israel a fiery law. So God gave a fiery law to the Israelites. There were ten thousands of saints that came with Him when that law was dispensed to the Israelites. In Psalm 68, 17 comments further on this saying, The chariots of God are twenty thousand, even thousands of angels. The Lord is among them, as in Sinai, in the holy place. And then in Acts chapter seven, verse 53, Stephen, before he was martyred, he said, The Jews Quote, have received the law by the dispensation of angels. And when speaking about his second coming, Jesus himself says he will be returning with his holy angels. Matthew chapter 25 verse 31. Matthew 30, 25 31. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory and the reason jesus is coming back with his holy angels ten thousands of his holy ones his saints his angels enoch said verse 15 he's coming back with his holy angels look in verse 15 to execute judgment upon all and this will begin to make sense to you here in just a moment you see the holy angels, and y'all know, most of y'all know that I, I, I work for the federal courts. <clears throat> and the holy angels are like the United States Marshal Service to the federal courts. They are the enforcement branch of the judges. Judges don't wear a gun. <clears throat> they judge, but they don't go out and arrest and all that stuff and transport. God the Father has made Jesus to be the judge of all men. And the angels will be the ones who go out and round up the fugitives in the earth so they can be tried and condemned by the Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew 13, verse 41 and 42, if you're taking notes or you can write this in your margin, Matthew 13, verse 41 and 42, Jesus said when He comes again, He will, quote, Send forth His angels, and they shall gather out of His kingdom all things that offend. They're the enforcement branch of God's judgment. And them which do iniquity. And they, Jesus says, quote, shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be weeping, or I'm sorry, wailing and gnashing of teeth. In the U.S. courts, the marshals bring all the prisoners before the judge. And the marshals take all the prisoners to their place of punishment. After being sentenced, the last words a federal convict is told in court is, quote, The defendant is remanded to the custody of the United States Marshal Service. I've heard that many, many times. The angels shall gather the fugitives up. The angels shall cast them into a furnace of fire. They'll gather them up. That is, they're going to be a rest warrant roundup, so to speak. They're going to go gather up all the unbelievers, all those who have only been born once. They're going to bring them before the great judgment. And Jesus is going to Try them and sentence them and then they're going to be remanded back into the custody of the angels. As they're remanded to the back into the United States Marshal Service custody. And that those angels aren't going to take them to a federal prison, they're going to cast them into a furnace of fire. There's going to be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Judah's saying that Enoch is saying Yes, the creepy clergy are in the church now. Yes, they're doing great damage now, but Jesus is coming back to execute judgment upon all. And I want you to notice that Enoch said all." I was reading the other day in a news piece where um, some motorcyclists in East Texas had taken uh, the police departments on a wild. Chase, 130 mile an hour chase. And as the officer was chasing them, one motorcycle went this way, the other motorcycle went that way. Well, guess how many people the officer caught? Guess how many he didn't catch? He didn't catch both of them. One got away. The other one got caught. Enoch said, all. All. Nobody will be able to evade apprehension when Jesus comes. And this is in keeping with the words of Christ that we just read in Matthew 13. He said, they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend. Nothing left. Enoch said Jesus was essentially coming back to do two things. Number one, to execute judgment upon all. And look back in your text. Number two, and to convince all. If you're taking notes outside the word convince, if you don't have a modern translation that has already changed it, you can put the word convict all. It's the same thing. You're convicting, you're convincing, it's the same thing. So to to execute judgment on, on all means to call court into session. And all the lost sinners are going to be standing before Jesus and they'll be tried. And to convince all means every. Pride will be convicted of their crimes. The federal court has an incredible um, conviction rate. They, they won't go to court unless they think they can win. I mean, you almost never want to go to court it's, if it's federal court. You'll lose almost every time. Every now and then, though, they'll lose. Every now and then, the prosecutor will lose a case. But when Jesus comes, he knows the hearts of man. And he's the judge of all men. There's nothing that can escape his knowledge. And he won't lose a single case. He'll only arrest the guilty. There won't be any innocent in there. All the guilty tried will be convicted. The righteous verdicts of God will be pronounced. And his righteous sentences will then be handed down and carried out. Once again, this is where Enoch's prophecy is relevant to what Jude has been saying about these false teachers in the church. They may be defrauding the world now. They may be fooling the church now. But they will be arrested for their crimes against the church of Christ. They will be found guilty of their fraud. And they will be held accountable for what they've done one day. This shows us not only how the general truth of prophecies can be applied to situations in our day like how Jude is applying Enoch's prophecy to the creepy clergy in his day. But you know what else it shows us? It shows us that the general truth of prophecies should be applied to situations in our day. The hermeneutical principle is called accommodation. If you're going to write that down in your notes, accommodation. Which means we accommodate. How do you accommodate someone if... if uh, Brother Doug were to come in here and he were were to be a special speaker or something, he'd be coming in from out of town or... Or and he was going to do some lecture or something. Well, I would want to accommodate him when I come. Do you need a PowerPoint presentation? You know, a PowerPoint a screen or something, uh, and a projector. Uh, you need a microphone. What do you need? When you need a lectern, you know, and you accommodate him when he comes. And so, if you can think about this, it means that we accommodate the Old Testament prophecy in the New Testament circumstances we are in. That's what Jude is doing. And if you'll remember this in your study of the New Testament, it will greatly benefit your understanding of why New Testament writers sometimes quote Old Testament prophecies that don't appear to be directly and specifically speaking about the circumstances of their times. They have an extended application to the subject the apostles are addressing. And they accommodate them. For example, in Jeremiah 31.15, the prophet speaking to the victims of the Babylonian captivity said, Thus saith the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitterness, uh, bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children refused to be comforted for her children because they were not. And then in Matthew chapter 2, verse 17 and 18, when the little Jewish babies were slaughtered by Herod in an attempt to kill Jesus, Matthew said Herod Herod slaying those Jewish uh, babies was a fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy when he was addressing the children of the captivity. When Jeremiah never mentioned in his prophecy any connection with King Herod trying to kill the Messiah. Never mentioned the Messiah at all. But when you accommodate the prophecy, you can take the prophecies of the Old Testament and apply them to the circumstances that you were in. Why was Israel in a bad way during the time of Jeremiah? Because of their sin and rejection of God's Word. And Jeremiah promised them that God, even though it was bad today, God would restore their Joy and take away their sorrow in the end. When Israel was in a bad way during the time of Christ, why were they in a bad way? Same reason Israel was in a bad way during the time of Jeremiah. Because of their sin. Because of their rejection of God's Word. But the promise God gave through Jeremiah to restore the joy of Israel and take away their sorrow in Jeremiah's day would also apply to the sorrow. Of Jesus' day. So when it comes to the prophecies, there's only one interpretation, but there are many applications. That makes sense? When Jesus comes, as Enoch said, he will hold Herod accountable for his atrocities, he will hold these creepy clergy for their atrocities, as well as all. Who commit sins against God. Enoch said all. Look back in your text that are ungodly among them. All of them. Only the ungodly will be tried and sentenced to the fiery furnace. The apostle Paul made it clear. that We are all ungodly though aren't we? Romans 5.6. Who did Christ die for? Christ died for the ungodly. The thing is those who believe on Christ as their savior. They're justified by their faith in him. And the godliness of Jesus has been applied to their account. In myself, you're looking at an ungodly man. But I have put my faith in Christ and His work for me on the cross. And that means that work has been applied to my account. (laughs) Those who believe on Christ as their Savior, they're justified by their faith. So, So the trial of the ungodly when Jesus comes again, when the angels marshal up, the the sinners and bring them for Jesus to execute judgment upon all and to convict all of them. That trial is not for those who trust in Christ. Why? Because they have already been tried and convicted and sentenced on the cross. That makes sense? Oh, what a beautiful thing. The sentence has already been carried out for us. And they have been made righteous in Him who put their faith in Him. Now this brings an important question. Namely, when unbelievers stand before Jesus, the great judge, what crime or crimes will they be charged with? Think about it. When unbelievers stand before Jesus, the great judge, what crime or crimes will they be charged with? You can't bring someone to court and not name a specific crime against them. Can't do it, can you, Brother Shepherd? Brother Shepherd has written many arrest warrants up, I'm sure, many uh, affidavits for arrest warrants. And you've got to name a specific charge and you've got to tell exactly the elements of the crime and, and, and why they're guilty of that charge or that judge will never issue that warrant. So when they come stand before Jesus on that great day of judgment, what crime or crimes will they be charged with? Brother Richard, why are you asking this? It's because there is a great number of people, and I bet many of you either believe it or have been taught it before, a great number of people who teach that since Jesus died for the sins of all men on the cross then the only sin Jesus can charge us with, the only sin that will send us to hell, is the sin of unbelief in Him as our Savior. How many of y'all ever been taught that before? A lot of hands going up. In fact, that's the basis, basis of understanding for the Calvinist doctrine. Calvinists argued if Jesus died for every sin of every man, then no man can be lost. That's their thinking. And they'll try to get you in a conundrum. They'll try to say, well, now, did Christ die for all the sins of all men? Or some of the sins of all men? Or all the sins of some men? And if you say, well, he died for all the sins of all men, they'll say, aha! But if he died for all the sins of all men, then how can they go to hell? Their sins have been paid for. And they'll try to stump you, get you in a conundrum. And uh, they'll, they'll try to work their way in like that. So they claim that Jesus must have only died for every sin of some men. Therefore, only those people can be saved, which they say are the elect. But I want you to listen closely. Then you have these other people that say, well, yeah, Jesus died for every sin of every man. Therefore, we are not accountable for those sins. We're only going to be condemned for the sin of not accepting Christ as our Savior. And that's what a lot of people teach. But I want you to listen closely, because both of those are wrong. I want you to listen closely to what the Apostle Jude said, and what the prophet Enoch said. When Jesus comes again, and the holy angels bring all the ungodly to stand before the judge of all the earth, the Bible says they will be tried and convicted, look back in your text, Of all their ungodly deeds. Which they have ungodly committed. That's it. Every sin they've ever committed. Now that shows us. That when these people are gathered. And they're marshaled together by these angels. To stand before the great judge. It shows us that. Their sins. Which Jesus died for. Because Jesus did die for all the sins of all men. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. This shows us that when they're marshaled to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, their judge, that their sins remain unadjudicated. That means they have not been dealt with in court, they still are hanging over their heads. Enoch said they will be tried and convicted of all their ungodly deeds which they committed. Look back in your text. And of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. In other words, they will be sent to the fiery furnace. They will be tried and convicted not for the singular crime of not accepting Christ as their Savior. But for every ungodly thing they did against their creator. And every ungodly thing they said against the holiness of their creator. You see, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for our sins is very much like the sacrifice of that lamb on Passover night in the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus on Passover night, first, they slew a lamb. They sacrificed a lamb first. And God said, "I'm going to pass the land of Egypt this night, and I will execute judgment." That's what he said. Same thing Jude Enoch's talked about executing judgment. I want to pass the land of Egypt this night. I will execute judgment." And so in order for them to be passed over on that judgment, the animal sacrifice was made, the blood was collected. And then they took a little hyssop bush, put in the blood, and used it like a paintbrush. And they struck it up on the doorpost of that house. And they went inside and hid behind the blood. And God saw the blood. And when God saw the blood, it was all the same as God coming by. Him slaying a house here. Him slaying a house here. He comes, he sees the blood. He says, I've already got that house. I've already executed judgment there because the substitute died in their place. And that blood's on the door. And so he passes over that house and he goes to the next one that doesn't have blood on it. That way, judgment's executed upon all. So, what happens if the animal dies? The blood's collected, the little hyssop bush is placed in the blood. And then sat down outside the door, and it's never applied to the house. What's going to happen when God comes through? Judgment. But the animal died in the people's place. It was never applied to the house. And that's what faith does for us. The Lamb of God has died for all, but it must be applied. That's where the Calvinists get it wrong. That's where the people that say. Oh well all of those sins are taken care of. Don't worry about those. You know it's just the sin of unbelief. That's where they get it wrong. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ. For our sins. Is the greatest gift. Ever. Given to the sons of men. But the gift must be accepted. Before the benefit can be applied. Does that make sense? The gift must be accepted before the benefit can be applied. The potential. God has put all the sins on Jesus Christ on the cross. All of our sins. The animal has died, right? The Passover lamb has died. The substitute animal has died in the guilty party's place. But if that guilty party doesn't humble themselves to accept God... As their God. To acknowledge that God is right. They are wrong. And that they need the salvation provided through Jesus' death on their behalf. If they don't acknowledge that. They don't accept Christ as their Savior. Then their sin remains unadjudicated on their head. If you have not accepted Christ as your Savior. Every ungodly thing you have ungodly committed remains on your head right Now, I can preach about Jesus and His love for the world and God so loved the world He gave His only begotten Son all day long. But until you take what Jesus did on the cross for yourself and you accept Him as your Savior, all your sins remain on your head. And then one day, when Jesus comes again, you'll be marshaled up, brought before the Christ, Who died for you. And he will sentence you. And remand you to the custody. Of his holy angels. And there will be wailing. And gnashing of teeth. That. Is the heavy doctrine. That Judas is telling us. All. Not just the creepy clergy. But all who do not believe. On the Lord Jesus Christ. The good news is. The creepy clergy. May have infiltrated the church for now. But one day, the church is going to be pure and spotless as Jesus himself. That's the good news. With that, we'll go ahead and close. And Lord willing, take back up in the book of Jude next Sunday. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for your precious word. And Father, Lord, it's sad when we think of the sorrow, the great wailing and gnashing of teeth that's going to come upon the ungodly. But Lord, at the same time, even though we we sorrow for the judgment that lies ahead, we know, dear Lord God, that unless that, uh, the offense is put away, Father, then your kingdom, Father, here on earth, will be corrupted. It will never be restored. The promises of Jeremiah... Uh, And the, the great restoration that's coming upon the earth will never come to pass. The sin, the cancer must be put away. That the body may be made whole in Christ. And we look forward to that day and say, even so, come Lord Jesus. His precious name we pray. Amen.